It's another spontaneous summer episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast with yours truly, Jenny Love. After the last episode where I chatted with Ellen Polishik all about compost, I got a lot of messages from listeners who were craving more compost content. In particular, there was a recurring theme. How can small farms make compost in a way that is feasible without big equipment? Lucky for all of us, my podcasting collaborator, Jesse Frost of No-Till Market Garden Podcast fame, just released an amazing new soil-centric farming book into the world, and within its pages is a perfect primer on compost, including the four main categories for compost and an easy-to-implement recipe for making small-scale, high-quality compost without a tractor. Hallelujah! That book, by the way, is called The Living Soil Handbook, The No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Gardening. While there are lots of veggies featured on the cover and in the beautiful illustrations inside, the content really is entirely transferable to flower farming. I'll include a link to that book in the show notes. In addition to talking compost, we also express our deep-seated infatuation with worm bins and how every household in the world should have their own and how every farmer and gardener without one is missing out on easy biology and nutrition for their soil. That brief interlude made me realize I've really got to dedicate an entire episode to worm farming in season two. And yes, there is a season two to no-till flowers coming up. Towards the end of our chat, Jesse digs into what he thinks farmers with compacted clay can do to improve their situation. Given his recent experience with trying to bring a new farm online that has poor drainage, compaction, and clay. So if you've got clay, make sure you stick around to the end of this episode. Before we get rolling here, though, I want to make sure to mention that I've been trying to send out a monthly newsletter to No-Till Flowers fans. If you haven't signed up already, be sure to grab the link in the show notes or head over to Instagram and look for at no-till flowers, where you'll find the link to the newsletter in the bio there. The newsletter is a chance for me to dive really deep into specific subject from time to time, and it's a way for you to get first crack at signing up for one of the field day events here at my farm. Sign up now to get the next installment, which I think (laughs) will be all about taking cuttings from perennials and shrubs to propagate plants that seem tougher than others at your farm, leading to greater resilience in the face of drastic weather change. All right, with that, let's go. I'm, I, I don't even know how to intro this show because I'm so excited about the book, and I was thinking today about how this particular recording that we're doing right now is kind of really full circle for me because it was right about this time last year that you interviewed me about Living Pathways, and I was like, Jesse's interviewing me. This is amazing. (laughs) And I didn't have a podcast yet at that point and knew literally zero about podcasting. And now here we are a year later, and uh, you've helped me start a podcast, and then also you've written this incredible book, and I just kind of feel like you're on fire right now, so I'm really excited (laughs) for you. It's been great to watch you grow and see all the things that you're putting out into the world. No-till growers is really, um, you know, blooming for all all intents and purposes. So what's that feel like? What's, What's it like to watch all this happen? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's 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 great. It's so exciting because it's just I feel like uh, what we've been doing with No-Till Growers, obviously, is just kind of bringing in all these uh, amazing voices like yours and like Clara's and Josh and Jackson and getting all these all these filling all these little niches that we all had so many questions about. So um, it's very exciting because it's also answering so many questions for me as a grower. I think that's one of the things that's always, you know, been the main focus of our work is that it should be grower driven, that the people doing it should be people who have vested interest. And, you know, there's, there's great podcasts of people who are journalists and outside of the industry, but there's something uh, really beautiful about like how everybody has genuine interest in the, in the questions they're at, they're asking. And I think, you know, for me, that's been really fun and has revolutionized how I grow and has changed a lot about my farming practices and will continue to, I mean, you know, we've been talking over the last few years, we've, you know, discussed mostly uh, soil practices, and we want to continue to do that. But we're also going to start 
um, incorporating more about the business side of things and trying to figure out how those two things are more related. Now that we've kind of figured out how to eliminate a lot of the weed issues and a lot of the you know, uh, to to maybe work with clay and and work with some of the diff- more difficult elements of farming um, that make it so nuanced. We also want to make sure to not neglect what could possibly be the biggest part, which is the business side. The business side, yeah. I think that part doesn't get talked about enough, and I am all in for more chats about sustainable business because that's a whole other, you know, kettle of fish that you have to you have to figure out and it's not the same as farming and too often business is neglected when it comes to farming i feel like that's that's such an important piece so i'm glad you're going to tackle that <laughs> and we have to feel fill that niche of like interest in the soil part because for myself like the whole thing that started this sort of journey into no till was like not feeling like my production was there and being like why what is going on in the soil that's a limit that's reducing that and it kind of all pointed to no till and that's where that came from but once we've satisfied that niche, it's sort of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like we filled that, we're, we're, we're trying to satisfy that element of it, like figuring out how to, you know, work with photosynthesis and make sure the soil is functioning at a high level so that we can also fill this other need of like, okay, let's do all the business stuff too. The hardest challenge with that is like making it interesting enough for, you know, other <laughs> people, people to listen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's going to be the biggest challenge is trying to figure out how to make it fun and interesting for people. But I I do think there's such a craving for that information too. I bet you're going to find that just the way when you first started no-till growers and it was sort of like, you know, you got to bring your tribe together and and coalesce. It'll happen with the same conversation about business because there are people that are hungry for that. And once it proves to be uh, fun to be nerdy about (laughs) business, then there'll be more people that are interested in talking about that too. So I think think it's going to happen. I'm I'm excited to watch it happen. So I was gonna I was gonna ask you what it felt like to have written the book on no-till farming. Now after having started a podcast a couple of years ago, trying to answer questions that you had and not necessarily being an expert to like evolving to actually write what I now consider. By the way, um, everybody listening, I've read the book and I consider it to be absolutely hands down the best. Uh, reference volume on no-till farming at a market garden small farm scale. So that's no small compliment because I've, I've, re- I've read every single book that's come out on no-till farming. So in my mind, Jesse, you've written the book. It's the one that everybody should have. And um, I'm not blowing smoke up your butt. That's literally <laughs> the what I think. <laughs> so. I mean, that's amazing. I'm never good at taking compliments, but I really, I mean, that that's amazing. I, I, I love to hear that because, of, you know, we I poured a lot of work into it. And one of the things that I think hopefully makes it so uh, comprehensive is that I drew from a lot of people. I tried to give a lot of shout outs in that book. I wanted to make sure that it was understood that this was me. This was a sort of a product of all the work I've been doing with the podcast and with no-till growers and that you know, it in in many ways, it's it's a book of the movement. And I feel like I can only take so much credit for it because of that, because it, you know, it was so, so much, so much a collaborative effort and and all the people that gave me their time and interviews and both that I published and that I wasn't able to publish just for for re- book research. But um, yeah, I mean, I think like it was, you know, to sort of answer your original question about what it's like to write it challenging. I mean, writing a book is a bonkers thing to do regardless. (laughs) It's just so much work. And I don't even know, like a a thousand, fifteen hundred hours. I have no idea. So many. Uh. (laughs) And they those hours were squeezed into long farming days and early mornings. I mean the last I would say the month of so like November and December of this past year when I was kind of finishing up the book and just starting it on editing and getting it turned in. So that would have been like basically like October through through December all the way into, into January. I was getting up at like 2.30 or 3 every day and writing until I ran out of time to write and physically like, yeah, it was brutal. So I'm glad, I mean, they they wanted it a little faster, the publisher did, so that was part of it. And, you know, just trying to push it. And I think had COVID not happened, it would have been a little bit different of how I handled the season, the 2020 growing season. I think everybody should do it. It's an amazing challenge. You learn so much from the research. Uh, hopefully your publisher will, you know, not encourage you. I mean, they were very nice about it. Obviously they gave me the option of pushing myself or not. And I decided to go for it. 
and then we had a pandemic. So that was uh, <laughs> unexpected and, an and all the other stuff. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was just like a very brutal choice, right. very, yeah. very poor timing, but, um, but what an experience. It doesn't yeah. show at all in the book though. I have to say it doesn't feel rushed or hurried. It's a very easy read. It's incredibly thorough and uh, approachable. You know, like I feel, I, I, I learned some new stuff in the book, but I also felt like, Hey, this is the best summary of all the information that I constantly get asked about from other growers who are like, Hey, you know, how do I do this? What do I do for that? We just had our um, no-till flowers field day here at my farm Um over last weekend where there were a bunch of people came, um, podcast listeners came to my farm and got to poke around my farm for several hours. And even after I think we were talking and working together for four and a half hours, you know, we had to wrap it up. But even at the end of that, people still had so many questions. And I was so grateful that I had your book that I could be like, hey, just buy this. You're going you're gonna to get everything you need in this book. Um, and that was such a uh, such a great gift to everybody you've done. I know it's such a labor of love and it's so tiring and stressful and you can try to put credit on other people. But I think at the end of the day, you're the one that took on the project and uh, made it happen. Happen, even if other people, you know, had knowledge that it took you putting it together. So thank you for that. We're all very grateful. And for anybody who's listening and doesn't know what the heck we're talking about, because I did a really poor job of introducing <laughs> this, is Jesse Frost wrote a new book called The Living Soil Handbook that is just all about no-till soil focused farming. And it's incredibly comprehensive. So A plus. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Well, thank you. I and it's so fun too when you start doing the research. It's that whole sort of like the best way to learn is to teach thing, but also like just discovering how much incredible growing information is out there in the scientific literature. Just I knew that and I've known it for a long time and I've always been into science and reading, you know, scientific papers when they were relevant, but when I was forced to, when I was like really trying to make sure that my information was, you know, as accurate as it could be. I was just blown away, just hundreds of papers on vermiculture and vermicast and using those, you know, like worm, yeah. uh, you know, in, in, in soil and like how it affects yields, how it affects diseases, you know, just those sorts of things. You're like, why is this information not easily accessible. accessible. Yeah. Wow. I yeah. didn't even, I didn't even realize that. I mean, a lot of times, and that's part of what's cool about the book is like a lot of times those of us who are practicing more natural farming, I feel a little, what I, my term is hippy dippy sometimes, you know, like I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, I do this because it feels like it's right. But then always feel like there's not a lot of science to back us up, but it sounds like there is a lot of science. It just hasn't been made easily accessible to everybody out there, which it's great that you've, you've done the research now. I like that. I think that's, I mean, I think that's accurate. I think m much of the stuff that we were talking about has been studied to some extent. And, you know, it's agriculture is really dynamic, obviously. Every soil, every climate, every situation is going to be different. Um, so it can't all be studied perfectly, but there's just an enormous amount of information out there. And I think it just doesn't quite trickle down to the growers in the same. And I've said this, I've made this point on a couple of different podcasts, but I think it's an important one just to say that, like, a you know, and to encourage people who are doing the research to think about how they can get that to the people who are going to most get the most out of it. Yeah, be able to use it the most. Because what happens a lot of times, like when when researchers write a paper for a for like on medicine, doctors can read that paper. That's what they're trained to do. You know, when chemists do chemists, astronomers, uh, uh, you know, all that stuff. Like that stuff gets to the people who will benefit the most from it. But it doesn't happen that way with astronomy with uh, agriculture. It often just goes kind of back and forth between the researchers, and that's not their fault. That's kind of the the nature of academia. Um, but I think that we should. You know, I'd love to have more of those people uh on podcasts and i i'm really appreciative of people like john kempf and uh food lab earth is another good one that does a great job of sort of bringing those people on and kind of poking through their research and and translating it a little bit but yeah i mean i think that's like something that anybody who's doing that research i would love to to have them be more figure out ways to get it to us. Well, if you know anybody that I should interview, I'll happily do that. So you just say the word. <laughs> Gladly bring yeah. on bring on people like that. That'd be cool. I well, you know, I was having this um chat with Ellen Polishik in my last episode, um, my spontaneous summer episodes <laughs> that come and go as as I have time. Um and it was all about just kind of the 
I don't even know. I, I guess I'm just going to call it an utter failure of compost at my farm. It's my fault. I didn't I didn't understand what I was doing. And it's one of my big failures that continues to haunt me this season. For those that didn't listen to that episode, you should really go back and listen to it. It's it's all about how compost can can be different quality um, and how the co- the compost I've been getting in has not been up to snuff and as a result has really tied up nitrogen in my in my system and then uh, I was reading your book Jesse and there's these um, this wonderful chapter on compost that I wish I had read a while ago <laughs> a long while ago and then I could have avoided a lot of mistakes so that's why I was like oh I need to get Jesse on here to talk about compost and you have these four types of compost outlined in your book that I found super helpful just to like break it down and think about this um, broad spectrum amendment that we all use and talk about constantly in the small farming world, but yet haven't really categorized and qualified in any way. So you want to talk, you want to talk compost with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's okay. do it. In fact, I, I do also want to second the idea of somebody going back and listening to the Ellen Polishuk interview you did, the meh compost one. Because there were some really good tips in there. Uh, one that I really liked, and I'll talk about those four types of compost in a minute, but I want to emphasize just how much I liked. She said a lot of times when you get compost deliveries with that like really mulchy compost um, or just compost deliveries in general, it's often too dry. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times we use compost dose that's very similar to, your, to yours and we had to amend it. But yeah, I've noticed that it's really dry in the center. And I loved that idea of just putting some drip tape on it. Yeah. And and running that because it it moisture, you know, your compost should be at like 70% moisture. You should be able to squeeze water, you know, just a little bit of drip of water out of it. It shouldn't be much more than that. I think she even talked about that. But it should be like pretty, you know, moist. And oftentimes you get really dry, really hot compost that's kind of newly enlivened from the, you know, being dumped in the truck and then driven on the road and then dumped under your so um yeah getting it moist will help keep to will help cool it down a little bit but also just help to to encourage those microbial lives in that decomposition yeah and also keep it from getting hydrophobic which is what my piles whenever i get a pile in and i don't use it right away that's why the top crusts and then even Mm -hmm. when it rains unless it's a really heavy rain it just kind of like sits there with the crust on it which was i i was there were so many points that ellen gave in that (laughs) in that interview that were dynamite they were absolute gold so I was so glad she mentioned the drip tape. And then also that tarp putting a breathable cloth over top of a pile was like mind blowing to me too, a finished pile so that you didn't get weed seeds. Cause that's what happens to me all the time. I get so many weed seeds in my quote unquote finished compost. And uh, that was pretty mind blowing too. So yeah, lots of good stuff in that show. But now I really, I really, you gotta, you gotta give me the details on your four <laughs> types of compost, man. I want, I want to talk about this, particularly your inoculating compost. Um, well, well, I want you to talk about all the four types. But um, one of the things that I personally, now they've had that talk with Ellen, and I've just kind of sat and observed my farm's ecosystem, namely the surface of my beds. And I'm watching, you know, just how mulchy my compost is. You know, it's just like chips of wood. There's hardly any other organic matter left after, you know, we started these beds in March and April. And now here we are in late July. And there's like hardly, you know, it just looks like I put bark on my beds. Um, and I think that's the typical quality of municipal compost, municipal grade compost. So you had in the book a recipe for creating inoculating compost. And I thought that was really genius because that's a lot more approachable. It's a, a much smaller scale than large scale composting, which is the other alternative for most farmers is to like, if they can't get good compost, then they're going to have to like set up a whole system for making lots of compost. And and that's just really hard for those of us that aren't on large acreage or have large equipment. So I like your what you presented that as this idea of creating a smaller scale composting system and then working that into other things. So why don't you take it away in terms of your thoughts on compost? Yeah, so all of those things. I mean, you're, you're completely right about you know, being able to make sufficient compost on most of our farms. Like I don't have a tractor. So any kind of compost I'm going to be making has to be done by hand, which means that it has to be, you know, really effective over a broad, you know, like it has to be something that's really well made and I have to be able to spread it out really far because we, you know, over an entire acre. 
but you know, let's talk about the four different types. Uh, and they're, you know, I broke it down this way because this has made sense to me and I feel like it'll make sense to other growers, but it, if you call, I want to just preface this by saying, if you call a composter and you say, Hey, I want uh, mulching compost, they may have no <laughs> idea what you're talking right, about. Right. <laughs> so that's an important, that's an important note there. Basically the four types that I've identified are the mulching composts, which are kind of what we were just talking about with the kind of hydrophobic and mulchy, uh, very, you know, uh, often wood chippy kind of composts, uh, high carbon. And then you also have things like, um, then you also have the inoculating compost, which we can talk you know, a little bit more extensively about because I think that's the most interesting category. Then you have like the fertilizing compost, which are we're generally just talking about high nitrogen composts. Uh, so I could have called it the nitrogenous compost, but I felt like for fertilizing was more uh, approachable. And that's, you know, things like chicken manures and, um, you know, uh, any sort of poultry manure. And, and then you have things like uh, the, the sort of nutritional compost. These are like the, the great compost. These are the kind of compost that just have it all. You know, they have a good nitrogen carbon uh, ratio. You know, they're rich with microbial life, good nutrient, you know, nothing in extreme excess. Um, something that you're going to be able to, that you if you wanted to use it in a deep compost mulch system or a no-dig system, it, it would be good for that. It's not as hydrophobic as your mulching compost and that sort of thing. So that's like, I've, I've, presented this idea to composter before and they say, well, a composter wants their compost to be all of those. And I was like, well, great, that's a nutritional compost. Like that's that's what we're talking about. And another one would be like another example of a nutritional compost would be like a raised bed mix where they've intentionally put the, you know, the micronutrients and the macronutrients that they need for good plant growth is already there. Like it's already, you already know that you're getting kind of everything. It's balanced. Um, Right. Or like a soil mix, like a good soil mix. I've heard of people, you know, making their own soil mixes at home out of compost and peat moss and all of those things, and then applying that in a small layer on their beds. And I think um, I did an interview with David Blanchard where he talked about that. And I thought that was a great idea. I mean, if you could, if you have the means, if you have the tractor and stuff and you could, you know, buying soil mix at that level would be really expensive. But if you could make, if you could mix like a light soil mix, then maybe you could do that. But um, so those things would be more like your nutritional, but Let's kind of dive into each one a little bit more in depth. Okay. So mulching compost are very high carbon and often not entirely done decomposing. Like you said, they sometimes lock up nitrogen, but it would be things like broken down hay or straw. It would be, you know, broken down wood chips, uh, you know, in that situation where, where it feels like very much like really you know, dirty wood chips, there's a use for that. There, there is a place for it. It can be used and it can be used really effectively. Uh, oftentimes you're wanting to combine that with maybe a fertilizing compost to make up for your nitrogen and an inoculating compost. So you're kind of doing, you'd maybe put down a layer of fertilizing compost, a little bit of, uh, and then cover that with a light layer of your mulching compost. If you're doing, if you're wanting to use it as just like a bed surface mulch, and then you can plant into that. But before you put your plants in the soil, dip them in some sort of extract or slurry. And I'll talk about the extract or slurry kind of falls into the inoculating compost category. Okay. So mulching compost, yeah, that's that's generally you want to use those just as a mulch. You don't want to think about them necessarily as a growing medium. Uh, we've done both, and we had to do a little bit more of that this year than I liked too, and we've had some failures from it. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you run out of capital, and there you are. But, you know, what we try to do is – you know, use those other compost, the inoculating compost for the microbial life and the, the fertilizing compost for the nitrogen um, to kind of make up for that. So with the, let's move down to the inoculating compost. Wait, I can, I, can I ask you a quick question though about yeah, mulching sure. compost? So in my scenario, I was using it for the deep mulch system and over the course of three seasons have ended up putting about a total of six inches of this, you know, mulch grade compost on my beds. And that's been the real challenge. So for those listening, I guess maybe it's more just a caveat to say, like, should you use mulching compost, that quality of compost for the deep mulch bed system? Or is it better to use one of the other kinds if you can get it? <laughs> well, one of the things is that your other kinds are going to be more expensive. So if you can supplement with one of the other kinds and mix them either together or layer them it does work in a deep compost mulch system, but it has to have that nitrogen element. It has to have a little bit extra and you can amend it too. Like I've had decent success amending it with things like alfalfa meal 
and blood meals or whatever else that, you know, other nitrogen sources, you know, that actually can be effective in the spring when everything's moist and you're not drying out super fast, like in the middle of the summer as we're in right now, you know, you that can be effective. But generally, you can, but you just, you can use it as a, in the decompost mulch. You just have to supplement. You just have to amend it. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, that would be my advice there. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I've been adding a lot of um, feather meal to my beds now when we make them. And also I use blood meal as a quick boost for nitrogen when I realized what was happening. So for anybody else that's struggling with that, the amendment part works. But I'd really love to know more about fertilizing compost and nutritional compost, the holy grail. So keep going with those ones. Okay. So let's let's slip down to inoculating compost for a minute because I think that's it's one of my favorites and it also has a lot of potential potential for getting the full spectrum of nutrients that you need for your plants. So some examples of inoculating compost in general would be like the IMO collection for Korean natural farming. Like that's a really good example of a high highly microbial compost and something that's got a big diversity of oftentimes very fungally dominated, but a big diversity of microbes. And then another example, and I think my favorite example is vermiculture, vermicast. I think everybody needs a worm bin. Yes. Amen. 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 <laughs> I can't say that enough. Yes. I totally agree. <laughs> they are just incredible. I mean, we just, yeah. can we just stop and talk for a second yes. about worms? Uh, yes. Can we talk about worms and everything else that's in the bin too? Cause it's not just the worms, like the amount of life in my bin is mind blowing and it's all, they're all doing the same thing. They're all working towards the same goal. So it's uh it's all of them. So yes, but yeah. they're amazing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. They're not alone in those bins and they can't be. I mean, worms, their main food is fungi and arthropods and those sorts of things. Like they need those microbes. Right. And so they need that all that decomposition and all those and all those, you know, all those decomposers in there with them. But they what they're doing, I mean, they're 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 multiplying the available the plant available nutrients in that in, you know, in whatever they're eating. They're passing it through, they're putting in, you know, as it passes through their body, they're putting in specific microbes that are really good for plants and are really good for decomposition and, and, and making more soils with, you know, vermicast uh, are less susceptible to diseases, less susceptible to aphids. I mean, it's just that there's just a whole range of things that they do to the soil. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, they're like little fertilizing machines. I think one person whose work that I've really liked who talks a lot about worms uh, is Graham Sate. He's a, he does the nutrition farming podcast. That's another one I really recommend. Mm, I haven't listened to that one. I'm going to put that on my list. Super nerdy. You'll love it. But he <laughs> has a, he has a lot of affection for worms too. And then Rhonda Sherman wrote the worm farmer's handbook. That's another really good one. Um, she's great. She should have her on. She's wonderful. I should. That's a good point. I, I love getting nerdy about worms. So let me let me ask you about your process with your worms and uh, we'll just compare notes on so how do you keep your worms? What's your what's your setup for your worms? And then how are you applying worm based products on your farm? And then I'll I'll tell you how I do mine. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of took the easy road. I, I got the worm bin from Uncle Jim's worm farm that they sell. And it's just a simple setup because originally we were just going to keep it in the kitchen and I was just going to feed food scraps to it. But then I kind of like love my worms and I want them out in the garden <laughs> with me. So they, they live out in the greenhouse. And so um, we, you know, I feed them about, I think it's about a cup of compost a week. So like one of my favorite things to do is run a really good compost through the worm bins and just make it even better. So you don't need much. And I, I feed them about uh, once a week. And I often, I find myself overfeeding them sometimes. I'm a little bit you know, a, a little aggressive with my poor worms. Are but you a doting parent is what you're I, saying? I'm a helicopter mom with my, with my poor wormies. Oh, I love them wormies. so much. So, you know, that's what we do. And then basically those are, it's a two layer system. So I'll switch the layers when that one, one lays out, when one fills up and then I'll sift that out. And, and I do a lot of stuff with my verma casts. So one of the things that I've been doing, you know, because this is a great way to spread out the nutrients and the microbiology without having to make giant piles of compost on your own. I love slurries. This has definitely been my favorite thing over the last like year is just taking a little bit of that vermicast, putting it in a bottom watering tray, um, filling it with water and letting whatever plants are going out to the garden, just soak that up. And then I take those out to the garden and I do everything in soil blocks. So it soaks it up pretty easily, pretty well. It soaks up, you know, basically until it's dry, till the, you know, the bottom watering tray is dry. So it soaks up that slurry. And then I take that out to the garden and I 
that that's been one great way to not only inoculate the garden with a lot of good microbiology, um, but it's fast. It's super easy to just take, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to be like, you know, thinking a day or two ahead, like you do with compost teas. Mm -hmm. That's just a super simple, fast, straightforward way. And, and also with extracts, like I'm often putting a little bit of vermicast in one of those little micron bags um, and putting that in whatever my sprayer is. And so the micron bag is not allowing the big chunks out, so it's not going to clog it up. But um, I'm letting that sit in a sprayer bag if I'm spraying like any sort of nutrient, any sort of nutrient application, I'll put a little bit of the vermicast in there just to get the any biology. chance I have. Yeah, yeah, just to get the biology and just to get, I think that some of the things that I, I remember... Christine Jones. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. About. Yeah, I loved yeah. your interview with Christine Jones, by the way. For anybody listening, go back and um, listen. That one blew my mind. Yeah, and talking about like just the, you know, it's one of the benefits is getting those signals in there, those like hormonal signals that that you do that we talked about quorum sensing yeah, I was and all that say, stuff. The quorum. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, so which cool. Yeah, which is legit science. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, that's that is like in a very accepted science at this point. When it sounds very French, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. <laughs> but anyway, that's what the vermicast helps to do too. It kind of puts those signals into the soil so that, you know, the microbes can know to do what they, they're supposed to do. But yeah, I mean, so that's another way I also, uh, anytime I'm, you know, anytime I get a chance to put vermicast on the soil, I do it. And I'll, um, if I have enough, I'll often put it in my seeds, like I'll rub seeds with it. So before I'll see, depending on what it is, if it makes sense um, and it's not going to clog, especially with things like cover crops, I'll basically put the cover crop in a bucket and I'll take the vermicompost and I'll just rub it on the seeds. I've never thought that. of that. That's amazing. That's a one, like a buckwheat would be so easy or winter rye, you know, those bigger seeds, it'd be so easy. Not the little stuff, but yeah. yeah the little stuff is a little more complicated, but yeah, the, um, but yeah, no, it, and I've been doing that with sorghum sudan grass and those sorts of things. And yeah. Uh, you don't want it too dry because obviously if stuff dries out, yeah. you, you lose the biology. The yeah. Yep. If it's something that is spreadable in a, um, you know, it's not too sticky. You can, I, what I've been doing is running it through, uh, our, uh, earthway cedar. So I'll basically put it in the earthway cedar on, and I think it's the P plate and I will just run it down the rows and use it to side dress. To just punch it um, in, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it drops it. You know, I do that on our tomatoes and stuff, and it's great. Wow. It's a really effective delivery system. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You kind of sometimes can get clogged. If it's not, if it's too wet, it'll get clogged. So you got to. You got to do a little bit drier, but it, yeah, it's an, it's an effective system. In my years past, seasons past, I didn't have a worm bin. We, we got a worm. We started our worm farm last year, but um, I was buying in bags of worm castings from, you know, for trail or, or Seven Springs, wherever I was getting it from. Um, in your opinion and your assorted research for the book, do you think that's as effective? I Now that I know and I see my fresh worm castings and, far, you know, like, like all the vitality in a worm bin. I'm not convinced that buying in worm castings dried in a bag is is really going to do that much compared to what you could do with your own fresh worm farm. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like my I I I can't say from a place of knowing on that one, but I think that um if you can get your compost or your vermicast or something from somebody who is super nerdy directly from the person who is super nerdy and excited about it that's the ideal there are places that specialize in in vermicast and they will get on the phone with you and be like and geek out over it that's who you want to buy it from and then that way you you can probably get the amounts you want but you're going to get like the highest quality stuff getting it you know and getting it from a bag at the store or the nursery or whatever and maybe i mean who knows how long it's been sitting there and what heat what temperatures it can be anaerobic i mean yeah i mean i my my inclination is to say like get it from a nerd or make it yourself right yeah and it's so easy to make yourself i mean i think that's what i was always daunted by it um and i now i'm thinking i definitely have to have a whole worm pharma episode here on the show but we'll we'll do a mini one right now uh but it was just so <laughs> once i like kind of got past the, it's like no till you know when you first think about no till farming it's like utterly overwhelming they just it seems like what like what am i supposed to do i don't know this is daunting but worm farm is so incredibly easy like it, it's 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 a no-brainer and I'm kind of shocked that I didn't do it before and also kind of shocked that not every household in the world 
doesn't have a worm bin. Like, I feel like everybody needs to have it. This would be such a huge step forward for our environment as a whole to manage our waste system. You know, it's it's so incredibly efficient and it delivers such nutritional um you know, gold for everybody who's growing. So I'm just, I'm just here to say, if you don't have a worm farm yet, you really, really should. It can be so easy. <laughs> yeah. 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 100%. So I have, I have the uh, cano worms um, at my farm. It's a, from an Australian company. The brand name is Cano Worms, and it's great because it has a spigot at the bottom. So what I can do is siphon off the leachate at the bottom without disturbing the worms at all or doing anything. Um, and I use the leachate a lot on in foliar sprays or in soil drenches and in that root soak like you do for yours. Um, I'm not sure if it's as effective as pulling out all the vermicast and doing a soak like that. Maybe you know if that's... Should I be doing more of the vermicast and soaking it or is running i run rainwater through my bin and then just siphon it off does that seem about the same so, so can i i unfortunately when i talked to Rhonda sherman about this she said she calls the what does she call it the mystery the strange smelly mystery <laughs> liquid and the leachate and um she was basically not necessarily oh, okay. using it because you just you just don't know what's in it and or and we, i have a spigot at the bottom of mine and i i've just been letting it out and then i'll throw it on a compost pile to kind of just recycle it a little bit because or throw it back or you could like you know soak your next whatever you're putting into the worm bin next maybe soak it with that and then they can deal with it they can make it they can enrich it but that's what she said is like it, it you just don't know necessarily what's in there and it may not it could have been yeah it could have gotten a little anaerobic or something so doesn't super recommend it but um I know people who have had done that to, you know, to at least anecdotally to success where they do run water through their bins and then use that. The, the Yeah, leachate. I think I got the idea from um, Nigel Palmer's book. I think it was his book or else Brian O'Hara's book. And one of them was talking about running water through their bins. Like I'm not taking stagnant what was left at the bottom of the thing. Like, you know, like I, it's like rainwater soaked through the bin and then I collect that. So, um, yeah, I don't see any problem. I mean, I, that in particular, I don't see any problem with necessarily. Yeah. Nature's dynamic. I mean, it, you know, what, what works in one system right. may not make yeah. sense in every yeah. system. So I'm just super um, lazy. So anytime I can like get away with it, I'm <laughs> like, Oh, I don't feel like opening the worm bin and like collecting the the castings, but maybe I really should do that more often. <laughs> Plus they make, they're making so many <laughs> castings right now. Anyway, it's time, it's time to clean it out. So, <laughs> but I like your idea of throwing a handful of compost in there every week. I've been um, putting some wood chips in mine, even though that's kind of against what, um, what they recommend in the handbook but um was it on your no maybe i think it was on john kemp's uh one of his recent episodes he was interviewing um who was he interviewing nicole Matthews, yes and yeah. she was talking about her um her worm based you know kind of composting operation she had back home um in the day and i was just like oh I'm going to put wood chips in my worm bin. <laughs> and they, they've really, they've churned it up. It's like most of the wood chips aren't even visible anymore. And that was a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, they're, they're quick with the quick with the draw there. But anyway, I'm getting us off topic. So uh, we we're talking about in inoculating compost. Welcome to my rabbit holes, people. There's always many on this show. <laughs> so uh, inoculating compost can be something like IMO from Korean Natural Farming or uh, Vermicast or you have a whole recipe in your book about how you do it at your farm. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it's, you know, in, in some ways, it's very inspired by the Korean natural farming method. And what it, I think if I'm going to point out one element of it, that's really important. It's this idea of like, you may if you want to do the Korean natural farming version of indigenous microorganisms, right, what that generally entails is, um, you know, uh, steaming some rice, and taking that into the woods in a, in a cedar box or a box and putting that out there for a few days to collect, you know, the indigenous, the indigenous, generally fungi, but the indigenous microbes. Uh, and then you're taking that back, you're mixing that with brown sugar, and then you're taking that mixture and you're adding that to compost and you're making, basically making a compost out of that. And I, over the years, when I was talking about Korean natural farming with people, a lot of people were like, yeah, but I live in like a city and I can't just leave a box out. And 
I realized like there, you know, and a lot of people have done this. I'm not the only one, but there, there, I definitely had the realization, like, can, there's gotta be something a little bit simpler. So what you can do instead is do your rice and then go to the woods or go to, you know, a park or somewhere that has like good old growth trees, get a little bit of forest soil from a few spots and maybe just a few sticks with some mycelium on them. And basically do that same thing at your house. Just put a nice cloth over top of it, put that, you know, put that um, mycelium on top and let it, let it colonize that way. Uh, and that way you're not having to leave it out, you know, in the woods and then have to go retrieve it. And maybe it gets rained on and all the things that can come with that. Like I've, I had several that got broken into, um, by, you know, various animals. So, um, you know, the, the one, one trick for that though, if you are going to leave it in the woods, I put mine in a live trap. So I just put it in a live trap and close the live trap and like a, the big one, like the raccoon size one. Yeah. Um, that one's been pretty, that's been pretty effective for keeping most stuff out, but mice, mice can still get in there. So it's kind of, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not perfect, but, uh, it, it's somewhat functional. Yeah. My challenge with collecting IMO, which I have tried about six times now is I can't, I'm in the city and I cannot find a healthy ecosystem to collect it from. I, I always end up getting um, contaminated uh, boxes. So uh, in an urban environment that doesn't really have old growth stands, I don't know how to do it. So <laughs> uh, for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. And I also think one thing, too, is keeping your, your rice a little bit drier than maybe they would out west. Like, a, you know, just in general, keeping I've found that it works better when it's when it's, you know, I add a little less water you know, what, like instead of the one to two ratio, do like one to one and a half and cook it most of the way. Um, so that it's like, you know, that that's, what's been effective for me, but yeah, I mean, and, and then letting it like kind of just dry a little bit before you put it in the box and stuff, you know, that that's been effective for the most, I've had a few that have, you know, gotten that mushy, not effective collection, but, um, but yeah, that that's generally what's been the most effective for me. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. And that, 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 yeah, that's pretty effective. But the, so basically I do a version of that where I'm in the book talking about just getting a little bit of a little bit, just a little pinch of, of forest soil, adding that to a soaked starch of some sort, just whatever you have. Like what I like using, I've had a lot of good success using, uh, you know, chicken scratch, chicken feed, um, non, you know, non-genetically modified or organic chicken feed, soak it overnight, drain it, put that mix in that soil, that, that mixture, and then put that down, like basically follow the same indigenous microorganisms, mm -hmm. basically just putting it down on the ground and, you know, covering it and letting it colonize and then, you know, watching your temperature and then mixing that into your nitrogenous materials and wood chips. And that just makes a really beautiful compost. It's just extraordinary. And I actually worked on that recipe a little bit with um, Troy from Living Roots Compost Tea and just to make sure that the microbiology was there. And the first round I did, I I didn't, ha I didn't have the microbiology and he was like, you just need more water. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I started adding a little bit more water and, and it just took off. And it, it seemed like that was, that was just, the, it smelled better and it just the whole thing performed better. So it was really a lot about moisture. So more water to the, the pile in general, not that initial um, gallons of water with a pinch of forest floor. Basically. Right to the okay. to the to the full compost. Right, okay. I should have been more clear about that. You want that initial pile to be. You want that initial pile to be the same like same thing. You want it to be that you can squeeze a little water out of it, but you don't want it to be sitting in water, and you know, and getting a good thermometer and monitoring it. But you can do you know, and then you can use that like we were talking about with the vermicost compost, using that as a you know as a slurry and and using it for as a foliar spray and. So that's, I mean, that kind of rounds out inoculating compost. And the difference between inoculating compost and the other ones is that, you know, the, when we're talking about a lot of times applying really deep layers of compost, we need to make sure that what we're applying is both affordable. If you're going to put, you know, you can't put six inches of vermicompost down, you'd go broke. But also there's some evidence that says that that ne wouldn't necessarily be good for your plants. Like there is a point of excess there. Like I said, there've been a million studies on these things. There've been studies, you know, that showed like up to 40 or 50% were good. But then when you get above that, like you start to see negative effects. And so like mixing it in at 10 or 20% is ideal. You know, that's, you're inoculating your soil, you're enriching it with a lot of nutrition, plant available nutrients, but you're, you know, there's a point in overdoing it. So like same with nitrogenous, 
you know, the fertilizing compost that that's, it's really possible to overdo it with those, those can burn your roots, especially with high, high fertilizer, uh, or high nitrogen. So yeah, so the so that's kind of like the thing with those is that, you know, you can't, you can't overdo it. But then nutritional compost is really, like we said, the holy grail, you're finding, um, I love that I can hear the birds in, in the oh, background. So, <laughs> I'm at my farm. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> No, they're great. They're they're a good ambiance. Oh, good. So the yeah, I mean the the thing with the nutritional compost is that it's just a really complete thing, and you're getting it from somebody who really appreciates compost. I mean the best you can find nutritional compost just to, by luck. Somebody who's been like turning a you know some horse manure and mixed with wood chips or whatever, you know if it's really good and it, it smells good and it's been you know it's just been colonized well. But generally, you want somebody who's testing the microbiology, who's looking, you know, doing some microscopy, doing, you know, general testing. And that way, you know that you're getting something that you want to cover your soil in, and it's not going to uh, overly pollute your soil. It's not going to um, contain another big thing that we haven't really talked about is the contain containing persistent herbicides. You know, when I spoke with... Um, Earthcare farm in Rhode Island. Yeah, she was talking. She was telling me about just like how they mitigate that potential for herbicide contamination. And I don't think a lot of composters do that. Like when we talk about municipal compost, they're not. Oh, they they're care. definitely not doing that. <laughs> and it can be devastating. And we have friends who've been devastated by it. That's something like I feel a lot of obligation to as somebody who's talked a lot about the deep compost mulch system and has has largely used it for a long time to a lot of obligation to make sure that people are being um, responsible when they're buying their compost, especially if they're going to use them in that quantity, because, you know, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to see people using the system because they see um, how successful it's been on certain farms, right? but then, you know, buying in a bunch of chemicals and having basically, you know, completely a disaster. contaminated soil. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and a loss, a huge loss of crops and having to bioremediate for a year and take, you know, grow cover crops and take those away. That's really unfortunate, but I've seen it happen. And, um, you know, I think that, that, that begs for a lot, you know, it, it, it needs a larger conversation about composting and how it's controlled and what people should be able to sell um, and how it's tested. But the, you know, generally you have to do that work. And one of the ways you can do that work on your own is getting a small sample of the compost that you want and doing a bioassay. And I don't know what would be the best crops and flower production, but like for, for, for us, we just use peas and beans. Those are the easiest because they grow fast and they show signs of contamination really easily. Mm, well, we do sweet peas in the flower world. So maybe sweet peas would go, would do the trick here. So um, I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Cause I, I have to admit that I don't really do grow tests myself, but I should, and I will now that I'm moving forward, trying to come up with better compost for sure. Yeah. Essentially just put your compost down into your cell tray and uh, throw some seeds in there and grow them like you would any plant and just watch them and observe. And if they seem to grow fine, you know, that's good. That's a good sign. And if they seem to have some discoloration or some, you know, there's a there, I forget where it is, but you can find um, signs of contamination. I think there's a composting organization that has covered that pretty well. And I, I actually referenced them in the book. I'm, I'm, I'm actually worried right now that I might have contamination in my farm, but from leaves that I brought in in the fall, cause I had a contractor, you know, like one of those guys that goes around and blows leaves off of people's yards. And I, I've noticed some curling of new growth tips in various crops around the farm. And the only common denominator I can come up with is that they've been mulched in leaves. So that's got me scratching my head a little bit because I'm sure mm. I, I would assume there could be some residual herbicide because these are you know, coming from lawns of people in the city who, you know, no doubt spray all sorts of things because they, God forbid, there be a weed in the middle of their grass. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering if that's possible that it got swept up, you know, in, in with the leaves. I don't know yet. I have to get some testing done, but it's starting to get a little unnerving. That's all I have to say about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to find those. It's hard to find some of those chemicals. Like they're really difficult to detect and test and the tests are very expensive, but the, yeah, I mean, maybe somebody put some lawn clippings in there or something too, and that 
you know. Yeah. So you've just opened up a new farm, essentially, in the past, you know, few months. What system did you use then for your bed prep? What And what lessons have you learned from your, you know, from your previous farmstead to your current farmstead? What, what were sort of some of your takeaways that you brought with you from one to the other? Yeah, yeah, good question. So the uh, we mostly went with more of a lasagna style for a lot of our beds where we were actually putting down a thin layer of hay in a really, in hay, like specifically hay, like really good feed quality hay um, in a thick layer of compost and then getting it wet and tarping it for, you know, several weeks and months um, to kind of break down that weed seed in the hay. Now that was successful in some beds and it wasn't as successful in other beds. And I'm not sure why it wasn't as successful in other beds, except for maybe the tarping was done closer to the winter time. So it needed a hotter period of time. But um, for the beds it was successful in, we grew our garlic there and they, the garlic was just fantastic. You know, that's a good, that's not, I, I, I still think I would recommend more doing the straw method of sort of lasagna beds and then giving it a lot of time to kind of break down and, um, although, you know, Jared Smith of Jared's Real Food, he was experimenting a lot when we were out there in February of 2020, right before the pandemic. Um, and he was saying that he has been experimenting a lot more with just making the lasagna bed. So doing layers of straw and, and compost, and then just going ahead and planting it. And he said he's had good success as long as the compost is really good. And he makes a really good compost. He has the track. That's got to That's got to be the key there is the good compost for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, there's been some good and bad from that. The other thing that's been really tough about this property has been drainage. I've never, I thought I'd had some plots with poor drainage and I've like just never actually dealt with it. And it's been an experience. I'm, we're basically going to reshape about 10 beds this, you know, after this growing season kind of winds it down. Um, once we get all this, this current crops that are in there, all the lettuces and stuff out, then we're going to actually plow that up and reshape the beds. We're raising the beds up and then we're also tilting them more downhill so that they can drain better. And I think that the living pathways have helped a lot. This is something we've really expanded on the new farm is living pathways. Yay. They've helped a lot with the, with the mitigating that excess water, but we found a pipe draining right into one of our <gasps> plots. So like a wow. So like a uh, a drainage tile. Somebody had this is a really wet plot in general, and somebody had drained had drainage tile draining right into our first plot in our garden. Oh so that's we found luckily found it on accident because I was having to to mitigate some other water. I was having to to redirect some other water. And it just happened to be that I ran right into that pipe. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is like <laughs> this is bubbling <laughs> up. And it could have been there for 30 years. Oh I mean, my who knows? Goodness. But it was draining right into one of our. So we re, so we redirected that. And that's helped a little bit. But there may be other pipes, too. So I don't know. Wow. You, you can't dig it all up. So, uh, yeah. So that's been kind of a challenge, an interesting challenge. So we're redirecting some beds. We're raising them up pretty high, which I'm not a big fan of raised beds in our climate because they, they, they get too hot in the summertime for a lot of the crops we grow. So I want them against the ground for the most part, or as close to the, you know, they get mounded no matter what, just with the compost and stuff, but I want them pretty close to the ground. But, you know, in this case, I'm having to kind of go the opposite <laughs> direction. So we'll wow. see. I mean, that'll be an interesting, and we've started raising all of our other beds. And so, so it's about half of that sort of deep compost mulch, a lot of inoculating compost to help with that and a lot of amending. And then, yeah, that lasagna's beds is about half the beds and then of the intensive crops. And then I have some long season plots, which we are going to completely do with cover crops. So those went into production this spring and they'll be getting their first cover crops this winter. And those will all be like our potatoes and, you know, uh, sweet potatoes, uh, uh, the uh, early carrots and some other things. So um, those will be like a four crop rotation. They're they're currently doing really well because they're getting that first burst. When you move on to a new property, you get you get a like a little carbon burst. So they're all every, all those crops are doing really well. But I want to have both. Like we want this property to be something where people can come visit eventually and be able to look at some of these different systems. So that's like we want a few different systems for people to be able to look at. Okay. And the other big thing, the other biggest, the biggest change beyond those living pathways, which has been a blast, and I've and really appreciated your your guidance on that oh, too sure. this year. <laughs> we, we, you know, beyond that is we expanded our beds from 30 inches to four feet wide, and that's been uh, really interesting change. I mean, so many different, so many differences, but 
Um, I really love just how much food is growing in a smaller. It just feels bigger. Like it's when now when I look at 30 inch beds, I'm like, they're so small. They're so little. <laughs> but I mean, I get it though. They're so easy to step over and stuff. They're 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 attractive in some ways. But I do. I've I've really fallen for the 40 inch for the 48 inch. Beds. I feel like as a flower farmer, I would have a hard time with 40 inch beds just because we have to harvest and lean in. So I'm trying to think of the equivalent for you guys. Like what would be something that's tall and you have to lean into it and sometimes you just can't get into the center of the bed if it's a really wide bed. right something like peas okay. i mean if we had to like if we or anything that's really on a trellis but we've i mean most of those things have worked out like you can lean them to one side of the bed or the other but for you yeah because a lot it's not like just one crop on a trellis it's like mm -mm. everything a whole bed full of yeah. <laughs> yeah everything like zinnias if i did 40 inch zinnias i would never get to the middle of that bed it would just be too hard but um we do 36 inch wide beds here so they are they're not 30 inch but they're not 40 inch either <laughs> so right. maybe 36 is 36 is a little better for flowers maybe i don't know but yeah. i i like the idea that you're trying all the different things um i am curious because i I don't actually know this yet. Did was your new farm farmed before you guys or you came into fallow land? It was it had some alpacas on it and it <laughs> had some horses. Okay. But it was not cultivated at all. Like it would I guess that uh, probably about 10 years ago the people that owned it had built some had had a big extensive garden um and so there's all these like mounds. It looks like they'd kind of done, you know, little raised rows which is really fun to drive over when you're on the lawnmower. <laughs> um, but they, they, yeah, so those, that was there, but for the most part, no, it's, it's, it, but it's super compacted, really compacted, really poor drainage. And the horses that were here had a pretty sizable area, but they had a thoroughfare that goes through part of our garden. So they just would walk back and forth and they're, you know, these are extremely heavy animals. So there's a lot of little compacted spots uh, that we've been working on. And it's kind of fun though. Like I, 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 I've used a lot of my farm as best I could, given that we do, you know, we do rely on our farm income. We've, you know, we've used a lot of our farm to experiment with different things. And this new farm has provided a lot of things that I, I've never worked on heavy clay and we've got a lot of heavy clay spots. I've never dealt with compaction. Like, I mean, I've dealt with light compaction, but I've never dealt with like rock. And so it's given me a lot of insight on how to manage that and what, works effectively and what doesn't work effectively and yeah so i mean i i think there's you know it's it's been an interesting adventure so what you're telling me is there's a second book coming about growing on compacted <laughs> clay soil because there are a million people that would buy that book <laughs> oh my I, that should i mean yeah that should be a book that's that it's so it's so i think different. i think it's one of the questions i get the most is people who are growing on clay that's just really tired old clay whether it's been compacted because it's been tilled or it's just like lawn or whatever the reason but just really tight clay um and i i don't have any experience with it so i'm always like i don't know uh deep mulch system i think <laughs> that's like all i ever know to say so well one of the challenges with that is it's depending on the type of clay you have and how deep it is or how if you have any topsoil above it you know if you put a deep layer of compost on that and especially in our like really rainy environments what you get is this like muddy slush right underneath of your compost and it just sits there and it just is gross it's anaerobic it's you know all, I have plots. <laughs> yeah i have plots that smell like manure and that's it, it we lost three carrot beds because of that like it just was not draining um i think that in a situation where you're dealing with heavy clay you really want to use the broad fork a lot you if you have a chance to use cover crops get those in you know in the fall and let them really work that soil a little bit one of my things that I've been doing is putting the cover crop in uh, and then broad forking when it's about six or eight inches high. Oh, interesting. To just kind of opening up those, because it's fine. It's not going to go anywhere. You know, just a light pop of the soil and let it just open it up and then get those roots even deeper. Um, so, you know, that's kind of just doing it in situ, I think, is a better way of, you know, instead of doing it beforehand. And then, but anyway keeping good moisture on it because as soon as it dries out, it's a rock. You know, uh, if you can, I mean, I haven't done this yet, but a lot of people have recommended just tilling in when it's at a good moisture level, tilling in a bunch of compost to kind of get that soil organic matter in there. 
I think that is a way of doing it, but you are going to just, you are just going to move your compaction layer a little bit. Right. I think, I feel like I've heard also like, you know, cautionary tales about that, about how that could end up creating, you know, a a bigger problem down the road in terms of density or whatever. So, yeah. Right. And I think like, I've heard people recommend tilling in sand and stuff. And I'm really cautious about that too, because I think at some point you're creating concrete. And so like, you don't want to, (laughs) you don't want to mess around with that stuff. Um, I've heard gypsum too, but I, I, I think if you can, if you have time, time is, is an amazing resource if you have it and, you know, using that with living plant roots and using your, all these techniques, the comp, the good composts, good so- seed inoculation, um, just that light popping of the soil to get it started, you know, addressing like, I, that's one thing I focus a lot on the book is just addressing what your plants need for photosynthesis and like, thinking about that, just thinking like, how can I make this cover crop really rock? Yeah. And then in the spring, you'll be working with something significantly better than uh, if you, if you, if you, you know, don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to be said for cover crops and broad forking. I think those two things single-handedly have changed the landscape of my own farm after way too many years of tilling and, and really messing up the soil structure. So yeah, I think they're the tools for any any small scale farmer at this point, um, regardless of what type of soil you're on, because I think they both really fix a lot of things. So, yeah. Yeah. And use them and use the broad fork. Like you, if you're on a heavy clay soil, you can probably expect to use it longer than your than everyone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like I'm using it so much still, and I thought it would become less necessary over time. But I think this goes back to having put so many inches of really crappy compost on my beds there it developed sort of a layering system where I wasn't Strata, in, yeah. yeah yeah I wasn't incorporating the um, compost anyway I wasn't tilling it so I ended up with a, a weird um, line literally like when I do a soil test you know a probe down in you know there's this like very distinctive line so uh, the broad fork has helped to start mixing that all together we're not turning the soil over but I think just opening up the pockets and cracking it really help so even though the the soil is fairly easy to broad fork right now I'm still broad forking at every bed turn to just try and get some of that compost you know down into the native um the native soil down underneath so with time but broad forking is such a great uh exercise so (laughs) i don't mind although to be fair response the plant response is great too yeah it really is yeah and you get such deeper roots which is um really important for a lot of flowers need to hey we'll talk flowers for a second (laughs) a lot of flowers need uh a good deep solid root system because otherwise they lodge over and that's one of the biggest challenges of flower farming is when the plants lodge over and then you get crooked stems. So for listeners who are listening um, who have struggled with getting sturdy plants, there's a really good chance that it has a lot to do with your root system and you need to focus on your soil structure and your soil health and the biology in there to get really good deep roots. And also the way you water, that has a lot to do with it too. Deep waterings encourage deep roots, shallow periodic uh, or shallow frequent watering um, encourages shallow roots. So if anybody, especially in July and August right now, um, has a lot of lodged over flowers, that's why, because the summer storms are coming through. <laughs> you need you need a better root system, basically. So great. This has been such a fun conversation. But as usual, I'm like eating up all your time and I have like a million questions left. <laughs> that I I really shouldn't I shouldn't pester you with so I feel like I'm just gonna have to have you back again sometime and we'll talk about some more but are there any other parting thoughts about the book in general that you have in terms of like particular elements that you think are in there that you haven't seen discussed anywhere else and you think could be really helpful to those people who are listening right now who maybe are still a little intimidated by no-till farming and and what that means yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind is like, I think that about half the book is really dedicated to practices that are probably is is helpful to a flower grower as they are to a vegetable grower. Yeah, I definitely. mean, at least half of it. Would oh, you yeah. Say that's I, think, I think it's more than half. I mean, I felt like it was not a vegetable book at all. Like I really, I mean, there's a few mentions of vegetables, but I, I really felt like it was uh, soil focused, which is what, you know, it's called the living soil handbook. So <laughs> it was true <laughs> to title. So yeah, very applicable to flowers. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the hope is that, you know, it, it, 
it will be something that would be relevant to, to anybody who wants to just garden or grow uh, professionally and wants to understand how soil functions and especially the, w the one thing I want to emphasize is like the, the photosynthesis chapter, the very first chapter uh, gets a little dense and it's, it's um, I, I, I did my best to be like, you're a person that cares a lot about what you do. Let me try and like lay it out for you. But I feel like as soon as you get into that, if you can dive into the science just a little bit and you maybe read that chapter a couple of times, if it doesn't hit the first time or watch a couple of videos on like, what is photosynthesis? You know, to couple of that with those two things, you suddenly you can pick up more papers of, you know, research papers and just get gleaned so much more out of them. You can, you'll start really enjoying that uh, experience because you'll start to really be able to connect the dots because they're speaking a lot of jargon, but a lot of that jargon is just simply how, you know, how photosynthesis works. You know, they're talking about photosystem one or photosystem two, and these things, this is just basic photosynthesis. Um, and if you you can understand what those are you you can just learn so much about how what how to address you know like um uh you know why certain things happen to your plants that's it's taught me a lot about like i discovered the drainage issue because i noticed that some of my plants weren't photosynthesizing well because they were stunted and i knew just by the look of it i was like i know what's going on here the soil's not draining and i looked at this lettuce and i said that's that's it that the soil's not draining and i reached down and sure enough it was just muck and that was one of those moments where I was like, this is this is the value of understanding how photosynthesis works and how because that's what we do. That's we're photosynthesis managers. And 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 also the power of observation of just sometimes spending time with a, a sense of curiosity in in your farming space instead of just always rushing around. That gives you a chance to notice that that lettuce doesn't look quite right and, you know, give a little time to ponder it, I think is super powerful to, to have that time, to give yourself that time. And I also wanted to, to back you up on that chapter about photosynthesis when I mean I've I have um, a degree in horticulture and I've taken way too many plant science classes in my lifetime um, <laughs> all of which were decidedly boring in in their like very um, dry approach but what I liked about your book was that for those people who are entering the professional growing environment without any background, you know, formal background in horticulture and maybe don't have a lot of plant biology knowledge in their head already, that chapter was just like a really um, good distillation of what would otherwise be textbook upon textbook <laughs> of info. So I think you did a really good job of bringing in the, the most needed information for a grower to process and understand so they can go out and be a better grower. So I, I think it's a great, a great chapter. So people should definitely dig into that chapter a lot. Well, that's great. Yeah. I wanted to make it practical. Like how can you actually use this information? And once you know a little of it, you can use a lot of it. It's, right. You can learn more. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like that's what the whole book was about. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful that you wrote it and all the information you can continue to share with everyone, including coming on this podcast today <laughs> when I know you're so busy and you have so much to do. So this has been fun. We should do this more often. I feel like we, uh, it's funny, we collaborate together so much, but we rarely actually sit down and talk. <laughs> so. I know. This is, it's, it's so much fun, Jenny. I look forward to this. For to these chats so much yeah yeah it's been great so well thank you so much jesse for sharing your knowledge with the world both in the book and in all the information you put out there we're all very very grateful to you so thank you well thank you jenny and uh i look forward to you know no till flowers season two. Oh yeah it's coming up <laughs> all right <laughs> Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love & Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers. Okay, I know. We're both doing this on a hot July afternoon. I don't know what's wrong with us. We're just crazy. That's okay. I, I think I know which uh, which episode you're talking about, though. Um, No-till garden, or no-till market garden. Um, no-till growers. I can't even remember the name of the podcast. <laughs> uh, anyway, Christine Jones's uh, interview with you was fantastic.